Welcome to the Team Building Podcast, where you'll learn how to build a dominant real estate team in your market. Featuring masterminds with team leaders and mega agents, plus in-depth interviews with operations managers and marketing directors of some of the top teams in the country. You'll learn the latest methods to generate and convert leads, streamline your operations, recruit and train better agents, and raise your profit. And now, here's the latest team building podcast. All right, you guys, well, let's kick this off. Thank you for everyone um, that's in attendance here locally and nationally. Uh, really excited to get into a topic that's dear to both of our hearts, and that's on investing. I know a handful of our current Elite Real Estate Systems clients were able to attend this event uh, just a couple weeks ago. We have another one coming up in two weeks, so we're going to talk about that here first and foremost. Um, our team building and investment workshop is hosted out of our office in Omaha, our new office. It's 10,000 square feet, tech-powered. Um, I call it a hybrid office of the future. Uh, Clint takes day one. So Clint goes, why don't you speak really quickly to what the, what's covered on day one of the yeah. investor workshop? Day one of the investor workshop is a very high-level overview of how we built our investing arm of our business. So we answer a lot of the big questions on what marketing are we doing to get off-market deals, how we analyze deals, um, our overall strategy on the Burr method, meaning we're refinancing um, and keeping a, a massive rental portfolio and building that portfolio, and then just really trying to answer one-on-one questions with who's ever in attendance on um, what marketing we can do or what whatever questions they have that involve investing. Clint and I have spent hundreds of hours, if not thousands, on Clint's and listening to podcasts, reading books on investing, and then applying everything that we learn into our own investment business. Um, a majority of our investments have been in the Omaha metro area, which I would say would be about a one-hour circumference to Omaha. And we currently are working on building a book of 100 doors. And once we hit our 100, we want to 10x that to 1,000 doors in Omaha. Um, we also have the desire to go and expand across the country. But the thing we find with investors is a lot of people are just scared to do their first deal. And there's a lot of different ways to invest in a deal. And we're not the ones to tell you the way you should invest in a deal. We want to help you find a solution to whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. So if you're just trying to generate $10,000 by assigning a contract in Nebraska, you can do that without the seller's permission, put a deal under contract and assign it. That's called a wholesale deal. If you're wanting to build a rental property portfolio, either single family or multifamily, commercial building, storage units, that's a whole different strategy where you'd follow the Burr strategy. So today we want to give you guys kind of a 10,000 square foot view, but I wanted to just invite everyone out if you are interested in traveling. I know not everyone's comfortable right now, but if you are interested in coming into town, we have a very special speaker um, coming who wrote the book Burr, uh, David Green. David Green is a co-founder or owner of Bigger Pockets, and we invited him a couple weeks ago to come as a VIP guest, and he's going to be speaking here. So we'd love to invite anyone in the local Omaha area, um, of course, any of our KW agents, any agents across Omaha. We're actually making it a discounted rate for anyone that's local, obviously, to get more exposure for our office and give them the opportunity to learn more about investing. It's only $100 if you're part of RIA. And if you're a licensed agent, and then if you're not, it would be $500 if you're not part of RIA and you're in Omaha and not an agent, and or if you're an elite real estate systems guest, I know there's discounts for you too. So be sure to reach out to Catherine, find out what the deals are for ERS clients. Um, a few other updates, we just added Matt Mick. Matt, welcome. I just noticed Matt's on the call too. Matt is our newest success manager. So we're really excited. Matt's been able to implement all of the elite real estate system strategies and has grown his team in Lincoln to be the number one team in Lincoln. I think I heard recently they're going to do around 80 million this year for 350 to 400 sides. 
So Matt, really excited for you to come on. If you want to unmute yourself really quick, Matt, let us know if you know how um, anyone in our ERS group can set up a call with you if they want to just have a quick 15 or 20 minute one-on-one. ERS website section where you can schedule with either Clayton or myself. So on there, um, I think I currently have Mondays and Thursdays spots available for those 15 minutes um, spots. So uh, you can find that just on the ERS website. Cool. You'll see Matt at upcoming events. Um, hopefully you'll be here for the workshop coming up. And then, of course, our big event every summer, the Team Building Summit in May. Uh, we're really, really looking forward to that. We're going to have a silent disco. Um, and like we've talked about with a lot of you that have attended events, a lot of the value, obviously there's content there, but a lot of the value is in all of the conversations that you have outside of the event. So we really would love to encourage anyone, both locally and nationally, to take advantage of all of our upcoming events. If you're not sure where to find those, just go out to EliteRealEstateSystems.com and click on events. Clayton, you're in the room. I don't even I don't even think I knew you were physically in the room when I was saying, can I get a sound check? Were you in the room when I said I that? That's embarrassing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Any other updates that I missed? Uh, no, I mean, obviously we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. We're super excited to have Matt on board. Uh, I just posted a link to schedule uh, where you can go to schedule calls, not only with Matt, but myself. But, um, we're super excited to actually jump on and, and help you guys grow your business. And I think, you know, take advantage of those. We're here to help whatever questions it might be. So uh, obviously schedule those up and we're happy to help out. Cool. Awesome. Well, without further ado, um, the goal today over the next 25 to 30 minutes is to give you guys a 10,000 square foot view of the strategies that Clint and I have adopted over the last five years. Over the next three weeks, we're going to dive deep into the actual processes that we've implemented into our investment business. But I think it'd be fun, Clint, to start off just telling maybe our story, go back as far as you want to go, but just kind of share with everyone where we came from. And I think that that's an important part of the story because I think we tell ourselves lies in different areas where we feel like we can't be successful. We blame it on different reasons. And I think it's an important note for them to know neither of our parents own hundreds of real estate rentals or made millions of dollars a year. We come from middle class, lower middle class, I would say families. Middle I wouldn't class. say, uh, everyone says middle class, but I think it was lower middle class. So why don't you take it away? Share okay. with everybody what you think. All right, I'm gonna go back to about 2012. Um, I was living in Omaha working for ConAgra Foods, working in a, in a um, manufacturing plant making popcorn, poppycock. Um, fiddle faddle and crunch and munch and I was a production manager there and I was watching Jeff uh, who is my lifelong best friend build out his real estate business and build out a team and become very uh, successful financially and I also saw that he had um, freedom of life where I was getting up at 530 in the morning and commuting an hour and just kind of living that corporate type grind and I started listening to um, real estate investing podcasts on my commute and one of my biggest learnings from those podcasts was how simple and uh, rigid real estate investing is. It can be a very non-emotional and a very high profit business. So Jeff and I started talking about how we could uh, blend efforts and start flipping houses and buying rentals. So in fast forward a couple of years, so I spent literally probably two years listening to multiple different podcasts. Um, including Bigger Pockets, which is probably the biggest real estate investing podcast. And Jeff and I decided to buy our first flip in 2014. So that was two years later. And we made about 11 grand on that first flip. I was pretty hands-on. We both put a little bit of our own money into it. 
and uh, it was a good little, I mean, we spent 70 grand on the house and made 11. So the return was good. And uh, for the next, I would say, two years, we just kind of made it a hobby. I kept my full-time job. Um, Jeff was pretty involved. We would both pick out the houses, um, whether they were short sales, on the market, on Craigslist. Um, we weren't doing any direct marketing. We weren't paying for, for any marketing. So it was all just kind of word of mouth and uh, pounding the streets. And over the course of those two years, from 2014 to 2016, we did uh, about eight or nine, maybe 10 deals total. Um, and all of them were money makers. Um, and it was all done part time. So there was a lot of education uh, during that time frame where we were just basically watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts. But in 2016, we finally were able to justify me to quit my full-time job to run um, our real estate business. So Jeff, I don't know if you have any views that you want to share yeah. kind of up to this point. Yeah, I talk a lot at the team building event about patterns that we find in successful businesses. And one of the patterns that I felt helped take us from a, you know, being known from a hyper-local standpoint to being known nationally was one, um, consuming as many podcasts as I could, could, two, implementing the things I had learned in those podcasts and or the books that I had read in our business here. And then we had exponential growth. Our real estate team, which was focused on residential and like our, our average sales price in Omaha is like 220,000. At the time it was 170,000 back in 2011 when we launched our team. And we grew from 70 to 240 sides in one year. We grew from 70 to 420 sides in three years. So I was on all sorts of podcasts. People wanted to learn more. And what really took the business to the next level was from 2011 to 2013, in regards to residential real estate team growth, we went out and traveled the country, me and predominantly my, um, as most of you know, our operations manager, Kevin McGowan, and we visited over 100 locations across the country. I joined mastermind groups. I started reading books on entrepreneurship and leadership and really tried to establish myself as an expert in residential real estate, not just a real estate agent that sells houses. And we implemented all those things and grew, I think we're the fastest growing real estate team in history, 70 to 700 sides in six years. So Clint obviously was very close to me and supportive of me and my growth in that uh, business as I watched him making poppycock and my favorite Cheeto, which is the spicy hot Cheeto. I think you guys did those too, didn't you do a limon? I, yeah. Oh yeah. So, the challenge was when you're best friends with someone, the types of trips I wanted to go on and the freedom I had, unfortunately, wasn't in line with the freedom Clint had. And so we started thinking about what would Clint fit well into, and that's where the idea of, well, what if we started an investment arm that flipped houses, that bought and sold wholesale, that wholetailed and or held real estate to build our legacy wealth. And I also was running into a challenge where I didn't know what to do with my disposable income. Obviously, I had all the financial planners in the world telling me I could invest with them and get 15% or 20%, but I wanted to control my destiny a little bit more. So before choosing to invest and before Clint and I even got started, my suggestion to Clint was to listen to as many podcasts as he could, read as many books as he could. And it's not the best advice. I recently had a friend of mine who's a landscaper in Omaha say, hey, business is going to slow down. The winter's coming. And I'm thinking about picking up a few houses. What do you recommend? And he got, a, he got a response from me that most people don't expect, and he wasn't excited about it. He didn't even respond back to me. I said, I'd recommend you listen to 1,000 hours of podcasts, you read 100 books all on investing, and you meet with 10 of the top investors in your area. You meet with 20 banks to talk about all the different options that they have to provide to you for funding. You meet with five or six people that you think would possibly privately fund the deal, and then you can start talking about and thinking about investing in real estate. And I was being a little facetious, 
But what, what frustrated me was that they came to me wanting me to just give them the formula. And the, the truth is, there's no formula. So even today, as we talk with you guys about investing, it's all based on what you want to accomplish. Just like with a real estate team or your health goals or your spiritual goals, uh, we don't have a recipe for success that necessarily will work for each and every one of you. You have to figure out that recipe, but we will share with you patterns and strategies that have really differentiated us, we feel, in the community and established us as thought leaders, not only locally, but nationally. Wow. Okay. I don't know how to even start back up again. <laughs> the segue. So Jeff talked about all of the planning and education that goes into it. I will say there was a lot leading into it, but I will also say, speaking specifically of real estate investing, it is very simple and very straightforward. And listening to those podcasts and reading and getting the education, the biggest gain that I took from it was more the confidence to go and do it. Because... It is not hard, it is straightforward. And listening to these podcasts to some of these people um, aren't very smart. And I knew that I'm a pretty simple guy. And when, if they can do it, I can do it. And that's what I really took from it was, I can do this, we can do this. So yeah, there is a lot to learn, but if you break it down and take one step at a time, one house at a time, one deal at a time, then it can be a lot easier. One of the patterns going back, Clint, to our first RIA meeting, and we have the president of the RIA that is an agent here at our office who's actually at our training today, Ted. And one of the things that surprised me was how many people had never invested before. I don't know what the percentage, Ted, but I would say over 80% of the people that are going and they're consuming content. And in Nebraska, we call this big hat, no cattle. It's the people that walk around and puff their chests and buy really expensive cars and act like they're big time, but they're really not doing anything. And I was surprised by that. We had already done maybe 15 or 20 deals and I felt like we were brand new and we were the little player in the room. So right out of the gate, for most of the people that are on this, both in the room and nationally, you've done hundreds of real estate transactions. You've already differentiated yourself from all the other investors because they probably haven't done hundreds of real estate transactions. We have a unique competitive advantage when we get into investing in real estate because we know the values. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things for an investor to figure out because you can go literally in our city, one street, the house is worth 30,000, three streets over the house is worth 80,000. And you need to know what street you're on. You can't look up half a mile radius. You have to really know the, the areas really well. So leading back uh, to where um, I quit my day job uh, in food manufacturing to lead our uh, investment business, as soon as I quit, that very month that I quit, Jeff and I went, I think, on two or three different trips. Um, we went to Arizona, California, and visited with some of the top investors that were in Jeff's network. One of them was using um, 1,000 Calls a Day, Jeff's virtual assistant company, to do some marketing. So at, to that point, um, in 2016, 2017, we had done zero marketing. And what we were learning as we got more education was that we needed to start paying for marketing um, so that we could buy deals at a deep discount. So the very first thing that we did um, I'll just share as a marketing strategy was outbound calling. So we hired um, a few virtual assistants in the Philippines at about, I don't know, five to $8 an hour, depending on, on what they make. And we bought a bunch of data. We bought 50,000 records uh, from, uh, from a company of motivated seller records. And generally a motivated seller is somebody who has high, high equity in their property and a high level of motivation to sell their property, whether they just inherited it, their landlord, it's a vacant property. So you can buy that data in multiple different places. So we How bought, much was it? Huh? How much was the I data? I think we spent um, $3,000 on 50,000 records. So it's like three cents. Phone numbers? For, yep, we got addresses. a name, an address, and a phone number. So then we uploaded all those. We, gave, we 
assign those to our virtual assistants to call, and they called on the Mojo dialer. And we used a freeway. CRM that we had already had for residential, Boomtown. Yep. We just uploaded all that data into Boomtown. Of course, there's better CRMs out there. We really like realestateinvestor.com. What, what's their CRM called? Reignite, but yeah, Reignite. yeah real, real estate. They do an awesome job. But if you don't have that and you're running a real estate team and you're using name the CRM, it doesn't matter, you can upload that entire database into your current CRM that you're using to convert real estate deals and then have your acquisition and disposition managers use it to convert your investment deals. So we were calling um, for about a month with very few leads um, and it was getting a little scary because we were spending money on marketing, we were spending money on the virtual assistants, on the mojo dialer, and we weren't getting a lot of traction. Um, but the first deal that we put under contract was uh, a property that is right near Warren Buffett's house in Dundee, Omaha, a really good part of town. And we put it under contract for 260000 and closed on it and listed it on the market that same day and put it on, and sold it for 350. But the quick pause was when we bought it, the intent was not to sell it as a wholesale. We were gonna flip it. Yeah. So as Clint started to evaluate it, it was gonna be about a $75,000 or $100,000 investment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so every deal, and we'll teach you guys all of this over the next couple of weeks, but every deal we look at, we assess the opportunity and try to decide which situation is gonna be the least amount of risk and generate the greatest amount of profit. But our overarching goal, personally, is to hold real estate. So Clint always asks, what should we do? Should we flip it or should we hold it? And I'm always like, well, if we have the capital, let's hold it. If we don't need capital to move on to the next deals, let's hold as many as we can. So this particular house, we start looking at the numbers and Clint's like, let's throw a Hail Mary, maybe we don't have to fix it up. Maybe we can make the exact same margin, take no risk, put it on the market, and sell it. Yes. And we made how much on that one? We cleared, I, I think, around $85,000. Net 85, that's a, and we call those white unicorns, but we've had a lot more white unicorns. Yeah. My grandpa always said, uh, what is it? The harder you work, the luckier you get. So the more deals you do, the more white unicorns you have, yeah. or you make <clears throat> a lot of money, but then we've also had our fair share of failures. Yeah. Why don't we share a couple of those? Well, let me talk about that first deal real quick, because I'm not done. The, <laughs> the big thing that I learned from that, first of all, yes, not every deal is $85,000 profit, but the light bulb that, that really went off is that we contacted um, a motivated seller, somebody who wanted to downsize and move out of state, and they sold it to us off market. We gave them exactly what they wanted. In fact, we originally offered 250, and they said, well, we want 260. So we gave them exactly what they wanted, closed a week later, met their needs. They were very, a very happy seller, and then we were able to profit that money. But that all happened because we put marketing out and bought a house off market. So the point that I want to make is generally speaking, it is very uh, competitive when a house is listed to try to make money on it. You have to be uh, maybe a very skilled rehabber um, to be able to add the value to make the money. So the money was made in the fact that we went out and found somebody who was willing to sell How many off market, off market deals are we even buying? There's not you mean very on many. market? Yeah, on oh, market deals. I'm probably sorry. 1%. Yeah, we don't we're, we're not even interested in playing no. in the MLS. Yeah. We also don't go to the courthouse. We don't we don't go to places where we're going to have to compete against a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's just like when you're generating real estate leads. You're not going to go gen try to generate a lead in a place where nine other agents are trying to generate a lead. You're going to try to find opportunities where you're the only show in town. And so when you buy that data, the truth is there's 10 other investors that are buying the data as well. Obviously, it's not just proprietary to you, but it's all about how you treat the data. And again, we're going to get into the details of that. I know, Lucas, you asked me about lead generation. Um, one of our weeks, I don't know what order it is, we'll speak about, on that at the end. 
Clayton, if you'll look that up, it was in our initial email. But one of our weeks is going to dive all into lead gen and lead conversion. And it's not going to surprise you that the lead conversion processes will be similar, and they're not the same, to how we convert internet leads in the residential space. It's all about communication. So a lot of the success with real estate investor was that they actually used my third-party uh, calling company in the Philippines, thousand calls a day, and they have their phone ninja team. So we literally send a piece of mail, and then that person that received the piece of mail gets a phone call from a caller. And we'll even have we even have people that go door to door and put up door hangers on top of that, and then we'll put up bandit signs, and we'll do radio ads, and we'll get into all this later with the details of how much all that stuff costs. But we've started to figure out analytically how much it costs us to go on an appointment and how much it costs us to convert one deal, and how much our net profit is dependent upon if we wholesale it, wholesale it, flip it, or hold it. And knowing those numbers in your own marketplace will give you the clarity you need to grow your business exponentially. And you'd assume, just like in residential real estate, that the bottleneck becomes one's ability to generate leads. Leads are simple. I don't think lead generating a lead is easy. Having the right people in place to go on all of the appointments is the hard thing. Having 100 Clint Bartlett's across the country is our current goal so that we can own 1,000 doors in 100 places. So that is the thing as we all think about building this investment team. Who is the who? Who are you going to use within your organization to be the person that goes on the appointment, that analyzes the deal, that runs behind the marketing? And in the beginning, it's probably you. And then you're going to have to find somebody to turn that over to and be okay splitting the equity in the business or finding a way to compensate fairly. And we'll get into all of that with how we built our acquisition team. We have two full-time acquisition managers who, are, who were agents on our real estate team and wanted to get more into the business-to-business -business world. We have a disposition manager. We have um, a general contractor Clint, in Clint's brother who actually went to con uh, construction management school, and I think that's pretty much everyone. We had a marketing director, I guess we still do, in Near. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a full-time marketing director, and then of course Clint works as the CEO. So we took uh, essentially all of our profit from that one deal and dumped it back into marketing, and we also joined a mastermind. So there was a mastermind, this is in 2017, um, called Six Figure Flipping, and what I thought was pretty insane, it was a, a $25,000 tuition to join this mastermind group for one year. And I think that was more than my entire four years of college cost. But the, the really cool part was, is once we joined that mastermind and started meeting with other top level investors from around the country, um, we layered in a ton of marketing like Jeff mentioned. We started doing internet leads, we started doing direct mail, which is now our mainstay. Um, the majority of the deals we get come from sending postcards out to motivated sellers. Every six to eight weeks they get a postcard from us and uh, we just learned a ton and we're able to apply it. And now I've developed and we've developed relationships with investors from around the country that when we have questions or if we're struggling in a certain area, we can call them up and see what's working for them or offer the same advice back to them on what we see working in our market. So it's just been invaluable to continually educate. And the other thing that I would say is that we have made constant tweaking and adjustments to our business for the last five years. So we're always trying new avenues of marketing. Every month. We're always, yeah, new strategies, mailing different people or different properties. So if I found that when we do the exact same thing over and over without tweaking it or kind of, um, I guess, moving forward with the times, that it's stale, it goes yeah. stale. So yeah, totally agree. we've had to continually educate through throughout. So we talked about our story, kind of getting started. We talked about some success stories. We talked about how we find the deals and kind of what that investment team looks like. I know Clayton, uh, he just posted what the upcoming events are. So it's first how to find. 
So lead gen, our cost to acquire, okay. uh, how to fund, which is always a big topic. And we'll talk to you guys about how we interviewed over 20 banks and raised private money. And then the last one is rent analysis. So how do we determine, I guess, what we want to do with the transaction? So Clint, let's talk about, you know, all of the investors want to brag about all the deals that they did and made all this money. And we have had some pretty amazing ones. We literally had one this last weekend that we bought from a hoarder that used the house as a storage unit. It was a, how big was the house? 2,400 square feet? Yeah. He used it as a storage unit. And it was a, probably a $200,000 home, but not in great condition. We ended up picking it up for 130000 put seventy grand into it. Seventy-five, yeah. And just sold it for $300,000 the week after. And it's about a three-month project? Uh, five. Five months. Call it six months. Do the math on it. <laughs> we invested you know, maybe a hundred grand of our own capital. Well, it wasn't probably even our own capital. And made almost a $100,000 profit in six months. That's a very big return. Yeah. So we have uh, some big wins, but uh, failures, learning by experience is all uh, a really big one. One of the big things that I've learned in our market is we love to stay at the low end of, uh, of home sales. So the median home sale Jeff uh, mentioned was 225000 for Omaha. Our average sales price for the properties that we're selling is 175. So we stay well below that um, because we feel like there's more buyers. You don't have to do the luxury high-end flips to be able to appeal to the fewer buyers that are out there. So as a strategy, we do not market to the high-end luxury flips. We're marketing to the areas where there's going to be more cash buyers, more investors, and uh, just a with, broader market. And with that being said, we, we do want to do it, and it is on our horizon. It's interesting. Clint just was recently married to Marie Bartlett, who is in the room with us today. Hi, Marie. <laughs> and we had a meeting recently talking about how we could go into more of a luxury home. We just needed somebody to put their time and energy and attention into it that has a lot of experience working in that higher price point. And it is something that we want to look at. I do think it's going to be a huge opportunity for investors moving forward uh, with the challenge with building costs going up. I think inflation will go up. I think interest rates will come back up. I think building a home will be very difficult. And I think there will be a unique opportunity to pick up luxury homes, which in our market, that's anything over about, what, 500000 we might consider luxury. I think it's a big risk, but I think there can be really big rewards attached to it. But I'm with Clint. We haven't done that up to this point. And most businesses will have their one thing, like they'll have their niche. And I feel like getting, segueing into some of our failures, our biggest failures have come when we've stepped away from our niche to try something else. And I think it's okay. Losing money is awesome because you never will do it again. Whatever you did to lose money, typically you'll never do it again. It can hurt you too, depending on what if your timing was just off and it was actually a good strategy. But I can think of a handful of stories yeah. that we could share. But let's, where, what, where did we lose our most amount of money? Most amount of money was lost in a house that we sold last year, and it took us a year and a half to sell it. And it the prostitute was, house? Yeah, it was in South Omaha, and it was a, a four. It was a fourplex that we bought for ninety thousand. And when we bought it, it was actually rented out by the room. So there were 10 bedrooms in this fourplex. And, and so, weekly. Yeah, it was rented by out the room, by the room and weekly. weekly. So, but the cash flow on it was supposed to be amazing. Um, it was like $6,000 a month and we paid 90 grand for it. So the, the return was just insane. But it was a management nightmare. A couple of things that went wrong. Um, the previous owner who we bought it from, who was kind of helping us with transition with management, um, died a week after we bought it, so that was tragic in itself. And then I assigned uh, somebody else to be the property manager for me to collect rent, and then he quit six months later because it was miserable trying to collect rent and keep it filled. We found that um, 
you know, renting by the room was just a completely different skill set that we did not have. So we went into it thinking, wow, we can make all this money, or at least I did. I don't think I told you much about the deal. You guys, um, <clears throat> the funniest part of this house was this was one where our videographer accidentally went in and created a Matterport video, drone fly over and gimbal fly through, and it went onto the MLS like that. And the house, it was the biggest pile I've ever seen. Bad. And so that somebody you know, said, hey, this wasn't supposed to like have all these videos and all this exposure. We were like, oh, that was a mistake. So over the course of the year and a half trying to sell the house, we basically had almost everybody quit paying rent. And then we had new people moving in and changing locks that we couldn't get out. And so I spent a year and a half both trying to sell it and evict people. And finally, we had just a whole house eviction. Um, and the cop, one of the one of the tenants called the cops, and then the cops ended up arresting her. But um, she tried to call the cops because we were illegally evicting her, but we weren't. And then they, she had other charges against oh, her. Oh no! But um, it kind of turned into um, a lot of illegal activity going on. So we finally got the house cleared bad. out and ended up selling it for eighty thousand. Um, and at the time, I had to actually write a check at closing for 20 grand, but the money that we had lost over that year and a half, um, I have not How much money tapped it up. It, I'm guessing it's over 40 grand that oh. we that we lost in cool. both rent, holding costs, oh. repairs. You know, sometimes fees. in these meetings, I don't even want to know. So I'm the, I'm the visionary in our business, not the implementer. What came up last, a couple weeks ago, we were, oh, what Clint gets paid. I found out what Clint gets paid at our workshop last month, yeah. which is funny. Yeah. So I am a total visionary. I have not implemented, Clint gets all the credit for the implementation. And obviously I've been able to bring dynamic properties into all of the worlds of the ancillaries that I can provide. So of course we get to use my personal financial statement to help us with funding deals, um, experience and reputation and raising private capital. And then of course they take advantage of platinum title and escrow, which is located at our office. I'm an owner in that business and can give a, a discount to investors. And so that's been a strategic advantage uh, for Clint partnering with me. And so as you look at who you guys want to partner with, you got to think about what can you bring to the table? You know, of course, you can plug them into your agents. You can plug them into your relationships with maybe a bank or a title company. But there really needs to be a reason why that implementer would want to align with you, both either from a legal standpoint and in creating an entity or some type of a split structure where you share the profit and or revenue. I think that's a great segue into Q&A. You guys have already asked a ton of awesome questions. So I'm going to start rolling through those questions. Uh, we do know that not everyone can stay around for more than the first 30 minutes. For anyone that's new, welcome to our high-level team leader coaching. Uh, we want to just kind of remind you, every Monday, Wednesday is the topical geared towards your agents. We want to get all your agents on those trainings. They're mostly led by Clayton. He does an awesome job. Every Monday is topical. Every Wednesday is dialogue. We also have built a library of searchable content. So when your agent asks you a question on pretty much any topic, your answer can be, oh, they've already done a training on that on the ERS database. Just go search it on the topical training or search it in the dialogue training instead of having to answer those questions for them. And then, of course, every Thursday is the high-level team leader call. We do ask that just the team leader and or leaders are on this call, not your agents. This is not designed for agents. We want to teach you guys how to run businesses and entrepreneurship and not how to sell real estate. And that's why we decided the month of October we would dive deep into investing. So I'm going to start from the top. There's been a lot of awesome questions already, Clint. I'm going to rapid fire these to you. Okay. Um, I just bought a rural property where we're bulldozing the home and going to put a new manufactured home on the lot. How would you evaluate the finances to decide between keeping it as a burr, getting 75 to 80%, or selling and plugging that money into the next deal? How do we decide to keep it and then you know, 
you said getting 75 to 80%. Does that mean keeping about 20% in equity and borrowing 75 to 80%? Loan to value? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, well, generally we use a rental calculator and given our experience now with our rental portfolio, we pretty quickly know um, if it's going to cash flow. We try to make at least uh, $250 to $350 on a Burr house and that's after pulling all of our money back out. So that's the cash flow um, after all of our expenses, meaning mortgage, taxes, management fees, everything else that comes with it. So if we can make a few hundred bucks on a property, we definitely do that. Um, in terms of a rural property, I don't know what rents would be. You'd want to analyze it. I mean, we try to follow at a minimum the 1% rule, um, which is basically your monthly rent should be reflective of a 1% of the purchase price of the value. Uh, but generally speaking, we try to be at a percent and a half, ideally, or higher if we can. Yeah. I think the other thing to consider is what you want. So over the next 10 years, if someone said to you that you were going to acquire 100 doors and they were all going to be $150,000 houses, where would you want those houses to be? Well, my suggestion would be go to areas that have doubled in value over the last 15 years with the assumption that they should double in value again. Typically, you can track high, um, if you look at low crime rates, uh, schools that get really high reviews. A lot of times rentals will appreciate in value if they're close to government buildings, hospitals. So I'd be kind of being cognizant of that. I think we all know the areas of our city where we'd want to own those rentals and Clint and I are very cognizant of that because our long-term plan is to be able to live off the residual that's coming from our rental property portfolio. So if you have a portfolio of 100 doors and they're $100,000 a door and all of those doors double in value, we'd all agree in 20 years they should double in value. You now own a $200 million portfolio. You've just doubled your money. And since Clint and I are 50-50 partners, our goal is to hopefully that it doubles in value over 20 years and we'll be making twice as much residual income. Real quick, uh, rentalcalculator.net has a really good analysis tool. Um, that's what we use when we're looking at Performa and... What about in the drive? For anybody that came out to the workshop, um, you get access to our drive and we should make that available to everyone in ERS. We will do that. Everyone in the company, or sorry, all the coaching clients should be get, getting access to that as well. What is in there right now in terms of calculators? Um, well, that's the one that we, I mean, that's just a website. <laughs> yeah, so okay. it's just a link. But, yeah. Yeah. Next question, Sherry, good job firing these off. And by the way, if you have more questions, please ask. Also, just for anyone that's newer to the group, we always end with Q&A. We don't always expect everyone to stick around for Q&A. Just know that we are going to do it. And there's no rules during Q&A. So if you guys want to ask about recruiting agents or any other topic, you can ask anything you want. You don't have to stay on topic. It gives you an opportunity to talk with me and or Andy or Clint or our thought leader on any topic and just gives you that one-on-one -on -one opportunity to ask anything you want. All right, I understand that you guys offer your agents opportunities to invest in your real estate investment properties. What business education and help did you need to get your REIT up and running? And how do you decide which properties to keep for your own owning versus offering it to the REIT? So currently we don't have a real estate investment trust. It's a, it's a strategy that we'd like to implement. We actually have someone here today with us, Jerry, who is experienced with that. Do you have one actively right now? Mm -hmm. But we have an investment company and we have syndication. Okay, investment company and syndication. 
Um, it is something that I'm looking at doing to help support our market center where agents can take a percentage of their commission dollar and be able to put it towards an investment group in some way and we don't have that solution yet. One of the things I think that they might be referencing is we have a deal with our acquisition managers that if they find a property that's not a property we generate, generated to them, we will make them 10% equity partners in the acquisition. So they'll get still get their compensation for finding the deal, which is $3,000, plus they'll get 10% ownership if they bring us a deal, which I think is a really unique opportunity for them to have some ownership in the portfolio for the legwork that they put in outside of the leads that we're generating to them. All right, what are the best ways to prospect? We'll be covering that, so I'm gonna skip that one. Direct mail. There you go. Okay. Great questions, we'll address each of these. That was what I said. What are your thoughts on texting homeowners for off-market investment opportunities rather than mailers? We do both. Yeah. We actually text, email, and send them a postcard and voicemail drop. Do you know anything about Lead Sherpa? Sam says we're looking into using lead Sherpa yeah, texting. They, what do you, have a pretty, they have a pretty good reputation. What do you recommend for texting? Uh, right now we're using War, is R O O R. R O O R. Um, but lead Sherpa has a pretty good reputa reputation. You can also buy the data from them, so you can literally both buy it and then use their texting service to do the the auto blast SMS. Yeah. Uh, you, Jeff, you talked about meeting with five plus local people who might be private investors. Would you advise me to focus initially on people that can loan me anything, such as 10 to 25 grand, or stick with heavy hitters that may be able to help entirely initially finance a purchase? So I'll address this first, then I'd love to hear Clint's advice. We've taken $10,000 investments. We've taken $250,000 investments. I have found it, it doesn't matter if the person is a, a multimillionaire or it's their only 10,000 to their name. Some people are super annoying and will ask every month for updates and what we're doing with their money. Other people will just give it to us and not talk about it for two years and then get their return two years later. So I wouldn't say the dollar amount is gonna control how annoying the, par the partner could be. I do think that um, I would rather take bigger bites because I can do a lot more with it. So if you get to choose between someone giving you 10 or 500, of course you should take the 500 if you can deploy it so that you can get your return there and make sure that they're getting their money back. Yeah, I would say if that's, I mean, if you're doing your first deal and that 10,000 or 20,000 will go a long ways to help you complete your rehab or go towards your down payment, um, then definitely do a promissory note with the lender um, you might have to guarantee the money, but yeah, anything helps. And we'll get the money. We'll get this into this in the next couple of months. But this is the whole point where people think they can't buy. A lot of times, you might have the credit, you just don't have the down payment. So what you do is you borrow hard money, and it could be a family member, friend, or someone at your RIA, and they loan you fifty thousand dollars, and they want a twelve percent return, and they might want some money up front. They might want one or two points up front, and then twelve percent on the back but you're only using that money for three to six months depending on what you're doing with it, and then you finance the rest of it. You can truly do a deal with none of your own money in as long as you're willing to compensate everybody else, and we do borrow private money. How much do you think we have right now at play? Uh, private money, just the 250 grand. 250, so not bad. Um, just 250. How are you getting around purchasing these deals and not running them through your brokerage as a realtor owner and not violate, violating license law? So we do run a lot of deals through the brokerage. Um, some we don't, and the way we get around it is Clint is not a real estate agent and does not hang his license with KW. So he can buy anything privately because he's the owner of Dynamic Properties and he just does a Nebraska purchase agreement. It's not a Keller Williams purchase agreement and buys them by himself. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. The, on the sell side, when we list them with KW, we also disclose that the owner, Jeff being a 50% owner, is a licensed real estate um, agent in the state yeah, of Nebraska. Agent in the state of Nebraska. 
Um, has equity. Has equity and is you know selling for a profit. And so. no one cares. Yeah. I mean, honestly, people worry about so many things. Same thing happens with real estate agents. Everyone's always worrying about all these scenarios that never happen. So to Clint's point earlier on, just do it. Just go through. I mean, don't do anything illegal, but just start the process. Do your best to do, keep yourself safe. Talk to your broker. Make sure they know what your strategy is and what you're doing. Talk to an attorney. This was something Gary Blumershine brought up. Uh, when he was here a couple weeks ago. The smartest thing you can do is to have a great accountant, a great attorney, make sure you're making good choices and you're doing to the best of your knowledge, you know, everything that's legal and ethical in your state. And it does vary. Be careful, I would caution everyone, when you're listening to podcasts and different strategies and books and um, the podcasts that you listen to. Each state does have different rules and regulations as to what you can and cannot do. For example, in our state, you can assign a contract without the seller's permission. We still get it just because we're ethical and we think it's the right thing. But we don't legally have to have the seller tell us that we're going to be assigned or get the seller's permission to assign the contract. So I can buy a house for 100000 that I think is worth 150 sell the contract for 110000 and make a $10,000 profit without the seller ever agreeing as long as the buyer of the contract will adhere to all of the agreement that I had entered into with the seller. But in some states, that's not legal without the seller's permission. So be sure, you know, in that sense that you're making the right decisions in your state. What is your expansion model and compensation? So I'll answer that one too. We haven't worked out all the details yet of expansion. Um, first and foremost, we're expanding our team model through our certified advisor program. So anyone that has less than 37 career sales, we're partnering with market centers to launch essentially the training, lead gen, lead conversion, and accountability slash mentorship vehicle to help each office do an additional 250 sides worth $50 million in volume. Once we get to around that 250, um, 250 side pri uh, point in unit sales, then we're going to start considering opening up our certified investor program in those locations. So we have not finalized how we're gonna do that, but if that is something that you guys are interested in being a part of, you can actually submit your contact information to us. Go to growwithers.com, and there's a link there on how to partner. I think it says literally how to partner with Jeff Cohn, and then one of them is to become an investment partner. Fill all your information out there, and then when we are opening your area, you'll be one of the first to reach out. And of course, being part of Elite Real Estate Systems, everybody in this group, you will be the first that we will reach out to if we decide to go to Greenville or Brewster, Lincoln, Nebraska. All right, we still have another 15 minutes, so you guys are welcome to ask anything. You can raise your hand if you don't want to put it in the chat. I'm watching all your pretty faces. All right, we got one in the room, Ted and then Bernard. So you guys are... I, I find that you learn more from your failures. I'd like you to do a whole class of people's failures. I think get, I personally get more of that than any speaker I could ever have. So you talk about the specific failure, but you never really got into what you learned or what, what you wouldn't do next time. Uh, could you maybe elaborate on that? I mean, I got some ideas, but can you elaborate on that? And maybe uh, instead of thinking about your biggest loss, think about your biggest lesson learned on, on, yeah. on another failure? So the biggest lesson that I learned on that particular failure was just, it was completely out of my wheelhouse. I mean, we were good at single family home rentals and a couple of small multifamily, but the whole rental by the room thing was just ended up being a nightmare. So that being out of my skill set, I did not have enough education to, to jump into that. Um, another one that we've had, we've had a couple of projects where we'll lose three or 5,000 and they usually end up being on homes that are bigger square footage that we rehab. So we found that the, the bigger the home, the more carpet, the more fixtures, the more bathrooms, the bigger the kitchen, um, that we underestimate the cost. So sometimes that's not a linear cost. 
um, for a smaller house with a smaller footprint. Because you have to set prices for revisiting. Yeah. Kitchens are going to be. Yeah, of course. You know what it's going to be because you just did another 40 deals the yeah. last 12 months. And you also, on a bigger house like that, you get scope creep because there's more rooms and more bathrooms, there's more issues. Each subcontractor that's bidding out the work um, will come into different problems because there's just more rooms, more space to come into those problems. So we've lost on houses that are bigger, I'm, I'm going to say plus, you know, maybe over 2,500 square feet when we go in with a with a budget that just creeps up because it's exponentially bigger. So that's been a lesson learned for us on those bigger houses is we now build out a bigger cushion of, uh, I guess, degree of error, margin of error um, on those deals. I would say also always plan to fail. You know, I don't know anyone who's ever spent money for lead gen who hasn't thought there might be a chance they're not going to convert a lead from the $1,000 mailing campaign that they just put out or the $10,000 mailing campaign that they put out. But I think that where we've hedged all of our bets and the risk hasn't been as high is getting involved in these masterminds, either locally at your local RIA or nationally through joining groups like what are there? Some multipliers and mm -hmm. seven-figure flipper, eight-figure flipper. Collective genius is a big one. There's a ton of different groups out there. And when you start to hear that something's working for people in more than just one location, 10, 15 locations, everyone's saying, oh, it's working, it's working, it's working. As long as you're working it the right way and in implementing the best strategies, you will be successful eventually. I think what Clint has done a really, really good job at is when we have had failures to Ted's question, We've been able to take a step back, self-actualize and self-confront and ask ourselves, what could we have done differently? Why did we fail on this one? Why did we lose money? I've never been mad about losing money. I actually kind of think it's fun because I get to give Clint a hard time. I don't care when we lose money because we learn from it. Now, if we were just continually losing money and our business was going into the ground and I thought we were going to go bankrupt, then I might get a little concerned. But plan to fail. If you plan to fail, then it's not a failure at all. Just be sure you take that failed opportunity to learn something new, pivot, and have success. And I'd say a lot of our big failures too come in the marketing that we do. So it's not necessarily in the deal. We'll try some new marketing and maybe we didn't do enough research. I didn't do enough research on you know, the company that's doing the marketing for me, or I didn't. I realized that this may not work in Omaha. It may be working in California or Massachusetts, but it's not gonna work here. So there's been a lot of wasted marketing dollars just on trial and error. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good question. What else? I think Bernard had a question. Bernard, you're up, then who's on deck? Hey, two, two questions off topic um, regarding, the first one is regarding referrals. If any of your agents refer business out, meaning you know a buyer or seller, refer them to you know, a different state or what have you, do you as a broker collect um, a fee of that or you just have the agent have it? Really good question. So every, any way an agent would make money in our brokerage, we're going to charge them a 70-30 split until they've reached their $25,000 cap. So it doesn't matter if it's a referral. I mean, what are the other situations? That's pretty much what you're going to see is a referral fee that goes out. So we'll always collect on that. I'm trying to think of some other, another situation. That's pretty much it, right? Can you guys think of any other situation where there's money collected by us, the brokerage? Where agents used to kind of push back. We had some, a few of our agents would push back on land deals and be like, hey, there's no commission in the land deal. Don't charge us a commission there. I'm like, because we're a capping model, it, it's nonsensical to care. Like, it, it's six to one and a half dozen to the other because they're going to pay the 25000 at some point, anyways. So I don't. I, yeah, but if I understand the right, so if you're in a 70 30 split, then you collect um, your 30% from that referral then? Yep. Okay. And on uh, probably the same thing, but on um, if an agent is going to buy or sell primary residence or investment property, what have you, 
Um, do you just um, let them have it without any commissions, or are you going to collect something on there as well? Primary residence, we aren't going to collect anything. They don't have to charge anything. Um, anything other than that, if it's a family member, we'll allow them to do a discounted commission rate, but we're still going to collect a commission. There's a lot of liability, obviously, around servicing any buy side or sell side, so there will be commission collected. I know for our investment company, Clint doesn't even know this yet, but we've chosen to place the agents that work for our investment company into a team within our brokerage that has a double team cap, which will empower us to be able to pay them out differently than how Keller Williams would want us to pay them out because our team within the brokerage, which we would call our KW Elite Hub, is treated just like a team. And in our brokerage, teams have double team caps. So once they've paid in 50,000, then we keep all the commissions after that in our hub will cap right away. And then it gives us the flexibility to compensate the dynamic properties agents however we want without the brokerage requiring us to take out the 6% or the 30% to go towards profit sharing. But again, on the primary residence, so you know, you let it go, you don't collect anything, but if that agent then is gonna start you know, to invest, you know, buy a flip property or what have you, you'll collect a certain fee then. So this is this is what's really interesting is we're acquiring deals that are not on the MLS. So mm -hmm. if you have an agent within your brokerage that's acquiring deals, there's no MLS, there's no payout. And then when they go to sell it, there's no commission. They're paying out a commission. So there's really no money to, you know, no meat to take off of that bone other than the broker fee. And Clint and I are still in a battle about if there should be a broker fee charged or not. Because Clint doesn't have to run the deals through our transaction coordination team. If he wanted to, it didn't. It wouldn't have to be in the company's books. And this is something that you're going to face too, Bernard. And I know you're asking brokerage-specific questions, but this does apply to all of us that aspire to become a broker. Your agent, if you're going to bill them and charge a big split, they can just do those deals outside of the brokerage. I even think as a licensed real estate agent that they can do the deal. If it's their own property that they're buying for themselves, I think that they can do the deal um, as long as they acknowledge that they are a licensed agent. They can do it without running it through yeah. the brokerage. So if you're going to charge a big expense, they'll just do it outside the brokerage. I think for their, their primary residence, it'd be insane for us to charge anything, in my opinion. Uh, no. We don't have a broker fee on that. They're the people that are feeding, housing, and clothing us. Where it gets challenging if it's, if it's your parents or your grandparents or your brother and you want to hook them up. And so... In our brokerage, the requirement is 6% on the listing fee. We'll allow an agent to go down to five as long as they get co uh, company permission. If they, they can go as low as they want, but if they go below five, with per they can't get permission to go below five, but if they do, then we're gonna pay the brokerage out as if it was at five. So if they only would charge someone 4%, we're gonna pay the company as if they had charged 5%. So we're gonna always be sure we're getting, obviously, the portion that the company deserves on each of the transactions. Right. Please. I think you covered it a minute ago. Ultimately, if you do any amount of business to cap, even you could charge somebody their primary residence and it wouldn't matter. Yeah, it's a moot point. Yeah, yeah, because we're a capping model, all the conversations really about like hooking people up go out the window because everybody's going to end up capping at some point. Good point. Ted. I think it'd be worth the conversation that, I mean, you talk about all your marketing, but you really haven't touched base on the wholesales. Like, what, what do you, um, how do you find your wholesalers, and how, what percentage of the business are from wholesalers and not from um, your different marketing techniques? Yeah. Yeah, so we buy a lot of wholesale deals from other wholesalers, and that's just whatever their assignment fee is, is what it is, as long as I can meet my criteria when I buy the house to keep it as a rental or flip it or hotel it, if I know I can make money on the back end, 
I don't care how much a wholesaler is making. We don't wholesale a lot of properties. We've done like a couple of wholesale deals, which have typically been double closing. So I buy on assignment, but I don't necessarily sell. What's the uh, most we've ever paid someone to buy a contract from? Them? Um, there was a wholesaler last year that we bought a house from. He made $40,000 wholesaling it. What did we us. end up making? Uh, 20. 20, $60,000 on the deal. Guess what though? No. We sold it to a flipper who actually fixed up the property. I don't even want to tell you how much he made. I think he probably made 50, made a lot. Come 50 on. grand or probably more. Profit 50, yeah. Why didn't we flip it? We had like 10 other deals. We had too many deals going on to but we could have put energy. It. Yeah, and there was Someone some risk. Too. There, was some, <laughs> there was some risk with the property too. Like there were some foundation issues, some big things that we didn't want to get into. I didn't want to get into, so we moved the deal and hmm. moved on. So there you go. Another lesson. That's learned. crazy. Quick nickel instead of slow dollar. Right? Quick nickel <laughs> instead of slow million dollars. Man, we failed twenty thousand. What a disappointment. It is. <laughs> Could have made seventy. Yep. Yep. Well, know. if we had found the deal and not had to buy it from the wholesaler, then we would have done really well. Yeah. How did we miss out on that grand. one? I know. And how the wholesaler find it? That's the interesting thing when you see this. You know, go to these RIAs and you see the type of people that wholesale. I mean, you're, you're going to get a whole spectrum of human beings. It's a very interesting group. And there's people that like legitimately will just knock doors asking people if they want to sell their house. Drive for dollars. Driving for dollars. So, you, And I don't think it's a horrible strategy. You see a house that is in horrible condition and you decide to knock the door and see what's going on and they don't answer, you ask the neighbors. It's the same strategy when you sell a house, you're supposed to go up and down the street five doors, across the street five doors. We do that with every house we buy, especially if we're flipping it. Clint will go door to door and say, hi, I'm Clint Bartlett, I own Dynamic. We're gonna be working on this property in the next couple of months and make it look a lot nicer to help raise the property value. If you or someone you know has happened, you know, thinking about I selling. That. Well, I know we've done it. We have in the past. Yeah. We should be doing it on yeah, every house. We talk to neighbors whenever we can yeah. chat with them, but yeah. I have a question. On the wholesale front, just, just so I understand it, if when you buy a house from a wholesaler, if the deal meets your metrics, then essentially, it costs you nothing, right? There's no market. I mean, it, whatever they make is a fee, but it doesn't eat into yeah. yours. So, so I guess wholesaling would be your best return on investment for Correct. marketing, right? It's a sphere deal, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So I buy a lot from wholesalers and other investors who have closed on the property and who are wholesaling it off market. So I have one that I've bought several from this year who will just send me a text and say, "Hey, I just bought this house. You know, I'll let it go for X price, and I'll go walk through it, and we'll, you know, buy it from them the following week." So those are free, and really a lot of a lot of times wholesalers are wholesalers are putting uh, email blast on their properties or a text blast out when they're trying to assign a property, or they're going to their local RIA and sharing the deal. You know, if, if there's other investors who want to buy it from them, so you kind of have to be in sync and in tune with the wholesalers in your market, so you can pick those deals up and stay in front of them. You guys systems, so I I actually have three agents. Uh, including myself, that call our list of wholesalers every week just to be able to get the cost of leads because they do not keep up with you on their sales or when they get the new opportunities. Yep. And Ted, we we did a deal a couple months ago, and I think it's because you texted me and said, do you have anything? And I was like, oh yeah, I have one in, in Benson. And a week later, two weeks later, you your buyer closed on the deal. Yeah. So To Lee's point, I mean, you're obviously, it's just like in real estate, if you're, if you're out in the business, going and building a sphere of influence is gonna be better than spending 20,000 a month in marketing. The question just becomes how big do you wanna go? If you wanna scale and acquire 20 homes a month, 
You're not going to probably be able to do it just off your sphere. You need a bunch of different vehicles. If you want to buy one house a month, or I know a lot of people in the group would be happy buying one house a year, you go to go to RIA every your RIA every month and tell the whole group you're always looking for deals and to text you if there's a good deal. And you'll have people reaching out to you, and you won't have to spend any money. You just have to put in the time to tell the group that you're buying deals. I know Clint has done an awesome job. Ted was actually sharing with me behind your back that a lot of people in Omaha like Clint. He's has he has a really good people have a really good perception of Clint. And I think one of the main reasons is when we say we're going to do something, we actually do it. When we say we're going to buy a house and we shake a hand, we do it. And I don't think we've ever backed out of a deal. Have we ever backed out once the hand's been shaken and we sign a contract? No. I mean, we're always going to do what we say. And if you're a wholesaler who has no money to their name and they're the driving for dollars type and they make $40,000 off of us and we're okay with $40,000 because we know we're going to make our margin, they're probably going to come back to us over and over and over again. So you don't have to spend a ton of money to find deals. You just have to create the belief in the people that are in your RIA that you can actually close, that you're, you're a good person to work with. Uh, Sam has a question. Did you switch from a team to a capping brokerage model to further opportunities for your ancillaries? Yes. And if so, do you recommend that teams have a cap to begin with? I'm not really a huge fan of the cap. Um, I like the business model if you have a lot of agents, but you need to have, depending on what your goals are, what I have found is most brokerages make around 20 to 20, most teams and brokerages make around $20,000 net per year per agent. And so if you're a team of five, all of us know all the work that takes just to keep a team of five running, you're gonna make 100 grand a year off your team, you can be an agent and make a half a million a year. So you really have to decide, do you wanna have a team of 20 or 25 people so you know you're making your 20 per agent, which is what I made at Omaha's Elite per agent, or do you want to just be a Navy SEAL team and have one or two people that you pay a salary plus bonus or however you want to structure it so you can maximize profitability? Or third, do you want to have the big team where you're making 20 per agent and some ancillary businesses so you can generate a little bit more wealth? The main reason of switching to the brokerage was the opportunities we had with expansion, including the CAPS program and certified advisor, sorry, certified investment program. Um, it's more about opportunity beyond Omaha, but what I thought was compelling to me is I always have said and believe that true leaders serve followers by giving them the ability to be just like them. Keller Williams was the best environment, in my opinion, to help the agents within our brokerage become just like me and build their own teams. And it was hard when I tried to help agents build teams on my team, it just didn't really work well, especially at Berkshire Hathaway that is anti-teams for the most part, with the exception of the one across the street from us. Across the country, they're very non-team centric. And the challenge there was I'm trying to build teams within a team at a company that's not supportive of teams. And so we needed to get into an environment that was more supportive. And the, the capping model is in the agent's best interest. It's not in the brokerage's best interest. The brokerage doesn't make much. And so they offset that. Obviously, they need agent count, but they offset it with ancillary businesses. And so that's one of the reasons that we launched Mortgage Title Insurance um, was so that we could offset the fact that we're not making much per agent, but it allows us, if we can get a couple extra deals a year with the ancillary businesses, it helps put a little bit more profit in the, the company's pocket. All right, we have time for one more question. Alyssa, and then we are gonna wrap this. This has been awesome, you guys. Great questions, really appreciate it. Uh, just a reminder, Clint will be presenting the next three weeks. We have yet to discuss if I will be presenting with him. I think he's probably gonna roll solo. I think he can handle those topics and usually prefers me not being here. So, do you want to commit to that? Do I need to be here on this? Do you good? Yes, I will be here. Clint will be here. Maybe I'll come sneak in for Q&A. Uh, but Clint will do an awesome job on that. Be sure to take advantage of it. If you um, aren't able to attend the investor workshop, essentially what you're going to see over the next three weeks, the investor workshop is that on steroids. You're going to get three times as much content. 
Um, Clint will get more into depth in all the different inner workings of our business. And like I said, I think the greater value is all the time we spend outside of the training. There's a lot of one-on-one time. I host a party at my house for the last night. Uh, we have a party at the office the first and second night, and we're here till eight, nine o'clock every day. We don't run away like a lot of presenters and speakers do at most events. We are a part of the entire event. So we'd really like to urge you guys to come. We're not going to host anything else until next year. This is our last event of the year. We'd love for you guys to check it out. We have some pretty cool businesses coming. Wise Hire is going to be here sponsoring our event. Uh, we also have TPMCO coming back. They really enjoyed it last year, or sorry, last month. Um, and so we expect to have about 30 to 40 people out for the investor side and for the team building side. And we'd really like to urge anyone that hasn't come out yet to come check it out. I promise it will not disappoint. All right, Alyssa. Oh, yes. Um, so my question is about Boomtown because we're about to roll that out. Um, and so what do you guys do with the leads that come in Sundays? I know that you guys have your Boomtown days, but you guys didn't have people. I think you do now, but you didn't have people come in Sunday. Does the Monday person just get like extra leads because they're getting everything from Saturday? Just so everybody has context. So independent of the CRM you use, there's kind of three different arguments um, as to how to field leads and what's going to help you convert at the highest level. Uh, speaking from our experience, we've been at this for 10 years. We've had a million visitors to our website. We've generated 100,000 internet leads, and we've converted 2.5% of those leads, so 2,500 sides from the internet. And we've implemented the best practice that I'm going to share now, and that is we believe that we should have every agent receiving leads and working those leads themselves and not going through a scrubbing company. Um, some teams will hire internal sales agents to scrub. Some will hire third-party VAs to scrub. But as as I make choices as a company, I want to make choices based on what I would want if I was a consumer. If I pick up a phone and call a sign, if I pick up a phone, or so I go to the internet and register on a site and someone calls me, I don't want to talk to the in-between. I want to talk to the agent that I, that's going to end up working with me. I want emails from the agent that's going to end up working with me. To me, that is serving them the same way I would want to be served. So. How we've done it since the beginning is we would do a rotation where an agent would take all the leads in a 24-hour period. That's still how we do it, but they don't have to physically be in the office, which we have like a little room that's dedicated to the Boomtown agents. So they always have a space. They have to physically be here from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m., and they can take a one-hour break anytime during their day. And they can choose to not take days. So if they don't want to be on the calendar next month, they don't have to be. Um, to be on the calendar, there are certain requirements. We actually went from a group of about 25 agents. Now we're down to how many, Nick? 12. I think we have 10 to 12 Boomtown agents. Um, Sundays, to Alyssa's point, the agent wouldn't have to come into the office, Alyssa, but we did have an agent assigned to that day. So okay. the that registers from 8 p.m. Saturday night to 8 p.m. Sunday night would go to one specific agent, but the expectation in regards to the activities that they have to do day one through day 14 through day 365 um, are going to be different dependent upon the day that they're on Boomtown. Now, it's, now I think we went Saturday, Sundays, are 11 to 4, and then Monday through Friday is still uh, 10 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at night. And the goal with internet lead conversion, and this is the same for sign calls, this is the same for leads that get referred to you, is you want to call the lead within one minute. You want to answer the call. Like literally if they register on a website, you want to call them right away because you want to get them while they're on the site. If they call, you want to answer the call. So I know um, some agents talk about bat phones. I've seen that a lot across the country, and there's a big team in Omaha that does that, where they have a Google Voice number that routes all their sign calls, website calls, mailer calls to one phone, and then they just take turns of who has the phone. You can do the exact same thing 
by having a Google Voice and redirecting the line. So we have a number, 957-1116, you can call it right now, it's gonna go to the agent that's on lead day today. So anytime someone calls off of a mailer, off of an advertisement, off of our website, we have an office line as well that calls our front desk, but we have a marketing line that's gonna call. And we do the same exact thing with our investment business as well. So it's pretty easy, I think it's free to have that Google Voice number. You can also round robin, which is the other strategy that I'm not a big fan of. So you have ISAs, VAs, you have the lead rotation like what we do, and then you have round robin. Round robin is where every lead that comes in gets assigned to a different person in rotation. That's what we do now, and they don't, they don't answer the calls, and then they don't call them, and it's a waste of our money. And they're not going to answer the call or make the call because they're busy. They're doing something else. Yeah, and then they forget about it. I was the worst at it, so. If they haven't time blocked for it, then they're probably not going to do all the activities you're wanting them to do. And we, yeah. we generate 50 leads a day. So if we round robin, everyone would get two leads. Out of all the agents, how many are going to really call three times the first day, leave a text, send a vo leave a voicemail, start them on their drip email, make sure that they're in the right category. It's going to be a cluster, right? And so having a designated person each day, I think, makes a big difference. Okay. All right, we're going to wrap with that. I'm excited for the next three weeks. Clint, thank you so much for being here. Let's all give Clint a round of applause for volunteering his time. And until next time, we appreciate you guys being here.